Creating the plot of this book was really a process of me finding historical documents that surprised me that I didn't know about and finding a way to include them in the story. Hello, and welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Muspel, and today I am happy to be joined by Mally Becker, author of The Turncoat's Widow. I had the most trouble writing George Washington. He intimidated me. I understand he intimidated a lot of people. Mally Becker was born in Brooklyn and began her professional career in New York City as a publicist and freelance magazine writer, then worked as an attorney for more than 20 years and, later, as an advocate for children in foster care. When she volunteered at the Morristown National Historical Park, she found herself sifting through the park's archival collections of letters. That's where she found a copy of an indictment for the Revolutionary War-era crime of traveling from New Jersey to New York City without permission or passport. That document became the spark for the Turncoat's Widow, her debut novel. Uh, so after starting the Turncoat's Widow, it's it's pretty clear that you are a pretty gifted writer. And I my first question for you is, why did it take you so long to become a novelist? Uh, Colin, I can't tell you how thrilled I am that, that you think that much of my writing. So first of all, thank you so much. Um, I worked as an attorney for, uh, over 20, 25 years and, uh, have a family and dabbled in writing, but that was what I had time for. So Whatever writing skills I, I possess, I, uh, I used in writing briefs and uh, testimony before legislatures. Um, but in, toward the end of that career, because I was lucky enough to be able to, uh, I guess, retire early or quit, <laughs> um, I had started reevaluating where I wanted to put my time. And I know that's a privilege to be able to do that. Um, and I'd always known I wanted to try writing a novel. I wasn't sure I could, uh, but life happened. That's the short answer to your question. And what, uh, Drew, what's your interest in, in history? Have you always been interested in the history of the, the region there in New Jersey where you live? What, what eventually drew you to 
the Morristown National Historical Park? Well, that um, my family and I have have spent lots of vacations at national parks and had a great time. So when I volunteered uh, to work at the Morristown National Historical Park, I thought they would assign me to clearing trails. And I really meant it as a thank you to the park system, you know, give something back. But instead, um, they assigned me to their archives. And they've got documents that aren't just about the American Revolution. They've got letters and proclamations going back to the 15th century. So um, as a former history major, I, I just loved it. And in the archives one day, I found an indictment, meaning an allegation that a crime had been committed. And it was an indictment for the crime of traveling from New Jersey to New York City without permission or passport. That was the phrase in the middle of the American Revolution. I've, I've always lived in uh, the suburbs of New York City, and the idea that it was ever a crime to go there just offended me. And I, I took a copy of this document to the park's historian and said, what the heck? And, and he sat me down and explained that the American Revolution was not what I'd learned in high school, and it wasn't even what I'd learned in college, that uh, the country was probably as divided then as it is now, and that in New Jersey, historians think maybe only a third of the population supported independence, a third supported the king, and the final third uh, was just too busy trying to survive to have an opinion. And he said that there was so much spying and smuggling from New Jersey into British-held New York City that the government made it a crime to go there um, in order to tamp down on that. And, and that's when I started playing the writer's game of what if. You know, what must it have been like to live in, in a war zone, basically, and to have to look over your shoulder all the time and make sure you hadn't, a stray remark hadn't been taken the wrong way, that you weren't going to be accused of being a loyalist. And, and that was my first step toward, toward this novel. Well, talk a little more about those circumstances and I guess specifically how they related to your main character, Rebecca Parcel. First, was... I mean, was she a real person that you took from these historical documents or a fictional creation set within those circumstances? She was a fictional character set within those circumstances. And, and she was the first character to um, pop up based on, on this game of what, what if, uh, because she's part of the one-third of, of the state, part of the disaffected. She's, she's too busy uh, trying to survive on the farm she's inherited from her husband, she's a young widow, to uh, care about independence, 
that that just seems uh, like something only wealthy wealthy people with time for philosophy can care about. Um, there, it was fun tracking down uh, the real historical characters, or, or it's probably redundant. The historical characters that are part of the book. So. In, in researching the time and how split the nation was, uh, I found some minor characters uh, who I'll talk about, but there's also George Washington in the book and Alexander Hamilton. Both of them were in Morristown during the time this story takes place. Um, I found an intriguing character, at least I thought he was intriguing, John Mason, who was head of a, the actual head of a gang of thieves that terrorized um, the western shore of the Hudson River, up and up and down New Jersey and into Westchester, New York, um, because that part of New Jersey was was kind of a DMZ, a demilitarized zone, with constant fighting between the British. And the uh, and the patriots, so I I made him a kind of enigmatic character. You can't tell if he's good or bad, at least for quite a while. Um, and as I said, there's Washington and Alexander Hamilton, and part of the action takes place in New York City. Uh, so James Rivington makes an appearance. He was a printer in New York, and he was known as the King's Printer. But in fact, he, it is most likely historians believe that he was spying for George Washington. So he was, he was a lot of fun to play with. That's, that's a long-winded answer to your question about whether Rebecca Parcell was real or not. But I hope that's okay. Well, it sounds like in order to set her within that historical context, you, you did have to do quite a lot of research Beyond just that initial intrigue that you found in the archives, can you tell us more about the, the background research you did, how long that took you, and what that process was like? Um, yes. It, it was an research was an organic process, thankfully. Um, and I started out, as I said, in the park's archives. Uh, and worked with some original documents that surprised me. And one of those was the indictment for the crime of traveling to New York. But I also found a, uh, a list of attendees at a party that George Washington sponsored for his officers. And uh, I believe all or most of the officers living in Morristown that, that winter attended. And the document shows that each of them paid $400 for a ticket to attend the party. And, and this, this was a terrible winter. It was the winter where 10 or 12,000 soldiers were starving uh, very close by in Jockey Hollow. So the idea that officers had had this money and I'll I'll get to the four hundred dollars in a second. It it really took me aback. And I had to make that party 
part of the story as well. Um, there was hyperinflation during the war. The economy was a real mess. So $400 might have actually been worth only $16. But, but still, from our 21st century viewpoint, the idea that, that this money would go to a party for officers when uh, regular soldiers were starving was, was uh, hard to get my head around. Times really were different, in, in some ways at least, culturally. Um, from there, I, I was lucky enough to be able to talk to some historians and museum curators. Uh, I did a lot of secondary research as the story developed, uh, where there were holes, or even things as minor as a character lifts up a, a mug in a tavern, and I, and I would stop and think, oh my gosh, I don't know what that mug would have been made out of. So you're, you're hopping right back onto Google on and off during the entire process. Mm -hmm. uh, and then luckily at the end, uh, a historian was gracious and, and kind enough to read the entire manuscript to make sure I hadn't uh, included any real boneheaded factual errors. So that was my research process. And did you include any boneheaded factual errors? <laughs> yes, and it's not there anymore. And I'm not going to tell you what it okay. was. But, uh, well, I, I, I got George Washington's position during the French-Indian War wrong. And, and somebody would have taken me to task for it. So I'm glad it's not there. And what did you learn about uh, General Washington maybe you didn't know before or you know how did he change as you saw him as a as a character rather than just this historical figure uh he i had the most trouble writing george washington he intimidated me i understand he intimidated a lot of people um but when I wrote him in my first draft and probably my second and third drafts, he was very stiff. Um, and the historian I got to know uh, actually complained that everybody, in, in, especially in reenactments, uh, George Washington always looks like he has a stomach ache. And there must have been more to him than the stiff two-dimensional portraits we, we all know from elementary school. And I, I took his words to heart, and the thing I hope that uh, humanizes George Washington is the conversations uh, I create for him in the book with his wife, Martha. Uh, Martha doesn't get as much respect as I think she should. She traveled to be with him every winter of the war. And this is a Virginia lady traveling north in really terrible conditions on awful roads. Uh, I, Martha Washington destroyed all the correspondence between herself and George. Uh, luckily, two letters survived that are in the Library of Congress. And I think they show that George Washington loved his wife. And 
in in one letter uh, dated 1775, they've they've been married more than 15 years. He tells her that he's just been named commander of all the American forces. So this is just before the war starts. He's just become the most important man on the continent. He's in Philadelphia with the other founders, so you know he's being wined and dined. Um, and he takes the time to sit down and write Martha a letter to tell her about this. And there's lots of flowery, loving language, which maybe he meant I was thinking as a former attorney. Maybe he didn't. But um, there's a P.S. And the P.S. says, I have bought you two dresses. I hope you like them. So in the middle of the most important week in his life, he, he takes time to think about his wife and to do something for her. And I, I try to put that sense of George Washington into the book uh, toward the end um, when, when Martha comes in. As a, a researcher myself, uh, reading documents from, well, document, most of the documents I read are from the 19th century. Did you have any trouble transcribing them? <laughs> um, a lot of them are already transcribed if you're, if you're looking at them online. Mm -hmm. But when I was working in the archives, you're right, it would really give you a headache. Um, paper was expensive. And in the 18th century, at least, to save paper, some people would uh, write horizontally, and then they would turn the paper sideways, and they would write across it vertically. Uh, and, and of course, there was no standard spelling, and, and people would transcribe S's and F's. So sometimes it felt like doing a crossword puzzle, yes. Yeah, it must um, take take a lot of time. You just want to you just want to get the information, and <laughs> yeah, you got to really focus and take some time to, to figure out what it what it all means. So tell me a little bit more um, about, well, you haven't said anything about him, but Daniel Alloway, and I'm also curious to know about the British ships in New York Harbor. Uh, so talk about that connection between Daniel Alloway and the, the ships in New York Harbor and what that all means. Yes. Um, creating the plot of this book was really a process of me finding historical documents that surprised me that I didn't know about and finding a way to include them in the story. And one of those things I didn't know about were the British prison ships in New York Harbor. Um, I read that more men died aboard these prison ships in New York than in the entire rest of the American Revolution. And that's just not something I learned about in school. And, 
and I'll get back to Daniel Alloway, who's um, another point of view character and very important. But I, I think what I learned was that not only is history written by the victors, but it's mostly written about their victories. The, uh, the prison ships uh, were truly horrendous and they were run by a, a man, William Cunningham, who's also a character, an important character in the book. Uh, so the book, the book starts with uh, Daniel Alloway, who is a former printer and uh, has gotten caught up uh, by the British net and placed on a British prison ship where he's most likely going to die. And he, he finds a way to escape, but in the escape, he incurs a, a career-ending injury to his hand. So he's one hand is maimed. Um, and he, he has met uh, my other character, Rebecca Parcell's husband on that ship. Uh, and Mr. Parcell says to Daniel, uh, I, I left a secret behind. Uh, my wife knows where it is, and George Washington will pay a lot of money for it. Daniel doesn't believe a word of it, but six months after leaving the ship in the middle and wandering New Jersey, looking for a way to make a living and survive, he, he runs out of options and decides to track down Rebecca Parcell and see if there's any truth to what her husband had told him. And that's that's really how the book gets started. Yeah, that's how the story of espionage gets gets going. Yes, uh, I want to talk uh, about Rebecca, the female protagonist, and and what I want to ask is, what were some of the challenge you ha challenges you had writing a female protagonist during this time period? And, and I'm also curious, do you think female protagonists in our contemporary stories face some of the same challenges that you had in, in placing a female protagonist back in that time period? Oh, we could talk another hour about that. Um, there, there are a couple of ways to attack that question. I'll, I'll take Two, a run, two runs at it. First is that during this time period, uh, women's lives were tremendously constrained. They weren't, it was not acceptable to speak in a public gathering. Uh, a woman would only have felt comfortable talking in a room to a man in a room by themselves if, if the man was her husband or a family member. And, and that's an almost impossible constraint if you're creating an amateur sleuth <laughs> in that time period, which in a sense is what Becca is. She's tracking down her husband's secrets. Um, what I did a couple of things to try to create a character that was honest to the period, but also still relatable to a 21st century audience. Um, 
first I, I made her a widow because widows would have been the only adult women who had con real control over their own lives, who didn't have to ask permission, who could own their own property because Becca has to uh, agree to work for George Washington and go off to New York and not ask permission from someone else. Um, I also, in one or two places, had her feel a little queasy when she had to go into a room to talk or question a, a man who was not a relative, uh, just to nod to the cultural norms of the time. Um, so that, that was one set of issues. And then the second set of issues is something I think um, authors with female protagonists deal with, whether they're contemporary protagonists or historical protagonists. Uh, and that is, uh, just as in culture, women are still have more constraints um, in literature and in, in life. Um, a, an angry woman is going to get a lot more grief for a lot longer than an angry man uh, in a business setting, for example, or, or will be judged more harshly. And I think so are female characters, even though uh, there's even more pushback against that in literature now than there has been for the last 20 years or so. Uh, I struggled with that because when you meet Rebecca, the, the first time you meet Rebecca, she ends up standing up in church and cursing the revolution, cursing both sides because of all the loss that the war has brought. Um, and the first time I sent <laughs> the manuscript out to agents, I got some very nice rejections. Um, but two of, two of them or more said they didn't like her. And I think, uh, it was because of that opening scene, which is still there, but it, it took a long time for me to find a way to hopefully make her, make Becca relatable and to make it, her anger understandable and sympathetic. Well, it's, it's hard to imagine nowadays the constraints that, that were put on women. And as you mentioned, mm -hmm. they had no, they couldn't own property. They couldn't speak in public. Um, so I, I, I guess I'm just, it's nice to, to hear you try to bring that to, to light um, by having a female protagonist so that people can see just what some of the things they had to go through. And I also appreciate your perspective in talking about uh, women in contemporary stories. And it's, it's something that um, is important to talk about and, and, and is starting to be discussed in literature circles about how and why um, it's, a, it's important to have the, that viewpoint brought forward. Uh, so tell me, you, you mentioned about... Um, getting some rejections. Uh, you, you published this book with Level Best Books. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about Level Best Books and 
how what was the process like of getting your book accepted for publication? Um, Level Best Books is an independent uh, publisher, a small press that specializes in crime fiction. And they had, when I sent them my manuscript, they had just recently started a new historical mystery imprint, Historia. They do not require... uh, they don't require you to have an agent. You can send your manuscript directly to them based on their, sub- their, their submission requirements on their website, if anyone is interested. Um, I had met the publishers at uh, a writer's conference in the past. And I also have a friend who whose book had recently been accepted by Level Best. And she actually mentioned to the pub- mentioned my book to the publisher, said she thought it was great. Uh, so I was lucky enough to have a connection when I sent the book in. Uh, I heard from them within weeks, which which was just lovely. Uh, and they not only wanted to buy it, they wanted to know whether this book was a standalone or was it a series. And uh, I, I had imagined it as a series, so I will actually be producing, <laughs> producing, that's, that's an interesting term, I will be writing two more, two more installments in the series. It's been an education and a really lovely experience working with them. They're very responsive, uh, which I hear is not always the case. Um, and, and they're just great. So it sounds like you're going to continue to write, uh, this sort of historical mystery. Um, what can you tell us about the next installment? The next installment takes place in Philadelphia. Uh, Becca and Daniel, without, without giving anything away about the, the current book, Becca and Daniel uh, agree to take on another mission for George Washington and Alexander Hamilton and travel to Philadelphia to uh, uncover a, a counterfeiting ring that is wrecking havoc on the economy. In the in the process, as part of this, uh, well, I think that's all I want to say. <laughs> okay, and th- this is has a, has a certain amount of historical accuracy to it. Yes, I am learning all about counterfeiting and and printing and the troubles of bu- buying paper and ink in the middle of the revolution. Uh, so I'm. I'm having fun with a slightly new topic, and I've, I, again, I, I think my stories always start with a historical fact that surprises me, um, and in this case, one of the historical facts I found was that the first uh, women's group on the continent was formed in Philadelphia at this time to raise money for the war. 
and Benjamin Franklin's adult daughter was a member, as, as were other ladies of the town. And, uh, and I've used that and, and also the aftermath of, uh, of the British having taken over Philadelphia. In, in, when my story takes place, the British have left. But there's certainly an aftermath for people who had who are perceived as having supported the British while they were there. Well, it definitely sounds like another intriguing story, and yeah, I never would have thought of those those issues. Um, you know, it's something you don't learn in in school, and I think that's why historical fiction is so important. I'm I'm curious after. Uh, you know, spending your, your career as, as a lawyer, um, how do you feel now uh, as you become a novelist about your career change? Uh, I think I'm one of the luckiest people uh, on the planet. I've, uh, I really enjoyed practicing law uh, for a very long time, uh, but writing novels and having them published and meeting readers and meeting people like you, Colin, is, is just one of the best adventures of my life. Well, that's wonderful. I, I highly that's... recommend it. <laughs> well, congratulations. And, and yeah, I'm glad you made that choice. And I'm glad that, that you're enjoying it. I am. I've been talking with Mally Becker, author of The Turncoat's Widow. Nellie, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me.